on yesterday's show, Amit tried to tell you. He tried to warn you. He said that Luis Enrique had his Spain team taking 1,000 penalties before they got to camp at Qatar. Amit, could 1,001 penalties perhaps have been more useful? I don't think so. I think they could have taken 10,000 penalties and it wouldn't have made a difference. That was horrible. Horrible. They looked like they had taken negative 1,000 penalties. You would not know that they had been practicing them. I'm glad that Tidbit made it on to the broadcast here in the States uh, from Ian Dark on Fox because it made it that much worse. Ooh, it was bad. As a general rule, you shouldn't bring on a dude in extra time with the sole purpose of taking the first penalty. It never works. No, and it's a bad sign if he misses. Yeah. Then it's like, oh, the vibes are extremely off. That's what happens. It's the World Cup. It got after dark today. That's why you're here at the World Cup After Dark podcast. He's a Mitt Malik. I'm Austin Miller. Our last great hope for chaos at this World Cup, Cristiano Ronaldo category aside, we'll get to him in a little bit, was Morocco, Amit, and they put in an absolute shift defensively today. They withstood like 850, maybe 900 passes from Spain, nearly all of them side to side. They took it to penalties at nil-nil after 120 minutes, and they took better penalties than Spain. They sent Unai Simon the wrong way, and Spain took really bad penalties, and Morocco are heading to the quarterfinals. And they're heading to the quarterfinals, Amit, having conceded one goal at this World Cup, which was a fluke deflection own goal up 2-0 against Canada. Morocco are really good, and they were really good again today. Yeah. We were well aware of how good they were, and the question for them today was they were going to be on the back foot. They had been playing opponents their way through the group stage, and this was a game where they were going to have to defend. And I saw some good stats about this, and it was borne out in what we saw. Spain had to respect Morocco's talent on the wings, and so their outside backs could not get involved. And... When we came into this tournament, one of the reasons I was in love with Spain, I was like, look at all this passing. Look at all this technical skill. Look at their their ways to go forward. And then we slowly saw over the tournament, their passing became more and more of a crutch and a shield than a weapon. And that's what it was today. It ultimately, this Spain exit reeked of the same failures of 2018. And that's the big takeaway for me. Spain, for all their possession, could not break it down. And did they, could they have some chances? Sure, they they did, but they did not create enough against the Morocco team. And Morocco are a very good defensive team. And as you said, the running and work from Morocco in this one, they had to earn that shutout over 120 minutes. So it's not as if Spain couldn't get it done against a, a bad defense. This was this was a great effort from Morocco, but... Well, here's the thing. Spain got it done against a bad defense in the group stage. Costa Rica right. played a generally similar game plan to this, but a lot more negative, and Spain put seven goals past them. They didn't have a problem cutting up that defense. That's why this defensive effort was so impressive for Morocco, because, yes, like it looked and felt like they were bunkered in and just sitting... But they chose their line of attack to be the perfect spot on the field where Spain could have every single sideways pass they wanted 50 yards from goal. 
But the second they got within 30 yards, there was pressure and Morocco were forcing them into quick decisions and they didn't get any of them right. Exactly. And Morocco also, before they were retreated in, they kept a relatively high line. Yeah. They were asking for Spain to play a ball over the top. And I like both of Spain's wingers. Um, and I also like today that we're going to talk about they didn't start Alvaro Morata. Play and strikers. He came, he came on and he ended up playing, I think, 60 minutes on the field, yeah. which... In... And he started is probably what he's playing anyway, right? Yeah. So that's I, I I can't maybe be fault with that, but Spain maybe could have used him when Morocco were playing a high line to yeah. get in behind because they weren't making runs in behind, and only in the last ten minutes where they had did they have a real real winger winger like Ansu Fati, and this was because their fullbacks couldn't get either. They just, all they could do was go sideways. Yeah. And this was really well constructed game plan from Morocco. And then look, this, they retreated in the second half in an extra time when they knew, Hey, we can't play a high line anymore. And they had to do more last defending, but it worked. And credit to Sofian Buffal, credit yeah. to Hakim Ziyech. Spain they, were terrified of those. They, they were. Tell. They were, and that's what made the game plan work, is that even just their presence, and when they got the ball, they did enough creativity dribbling, and you saw it in the last minutes of regulation and extra time, Morocco funneled a lot of chances to the big man on the counter. Yeah, yeah, they did. Uh, the big man on the counter you're referring to is the uh, Italian Serie Bay striker who came off the bench, did not have a left foot, that would have helped him at one point. And chose to take his best chance and shoot it straight at the goalkeeper, Unai Simon, which is not a terrible thing to do. He went for it, the Meg. Yeah, yeah. And it did work. Simon got enough of it. And admit, you and I were petrified for this man in penalties. Scared that he was going to get the call and step up and just absolutely miss his penalty. It, it's probably better for Morocco. They got yeah. done in four because he yeah. was coming five or six as yeah. the striker. Uh, and it didn't work, and maybe we'll come back to the game, but let's talk about the shootout for a little. This yeah. is Alexi Lawless is obviously a very public figure in the United States, and he's a big yeah. proponent of the shootout skill being a thing. Yeah. And while this podcast's ethos generally disagrees with whatever Alexi Lawless says publicly, this is one where we agree with him. Yeah. And this goes back to all levels of soccer, and we've seen shootouts up close, I think when you're part when you're part of one or watching one, it's hard to say that the skill isn't part of it. Yeah, the mental skill is a part of it, and Spain just looked really bad at their penalty kicks. And you could say like, okay, the keeper guessed right. That's guessing, but they were not well taken. They were no. easy to read. Their body language was bad. And yes, Bono, 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 really good. Like the guessing, he does the noodle, yeah. the spaghetti legs. It worked, right? Yeah, this was this was a good shootout. We don't need to overanalyze it, but yeah, when your I keeper just, makes three saves, it's awesome. Yeah, I just can't fathom that in the year 2022, with everything we know about this stupid sport and all of the time and effort and numbers we put into it, and everything that gets puked back out to us, that there are still people who fundamentally believe that a penalty shootout is nothing more than a coin flip. It's not. You can execute well. You can execute poorly. It's not simply a coin flip. It's not simply a goalkeeper guessing the right way or not. 
there's so much more that goes into everything that leads up to the moment when the taker takes and when the goalkeeper chooses a side and goes down. And are there elements of luck? Of course, because there's elements of luck in everything that happens in this game, right? Spain had a chance on a quick shot in the 120th minute that grazed the post and went out. That is luck because this sport is also built on luck. But that doesn't mean that the outcome of a penalty shootout is simply luck. There's so much more. Spain took bad penalties. Morocco took good enough penalties. And the Spain goalkeeper was not good enough, right? Like Morocco didn't take incredible penalties. But Unai Simone didn't get close to any of them except for the one he saved. Yes, but also Morocco shot down the middle twice. And that's something that's smart. If the keepers are going to dive every time, how often at the international level or any high level does the keeper stay still? It looks silly if you do it. So keepers almost always dive, which makes going down the middle a really good option. It's a a very simple math game, right? If it's you have two two choices and the keeper has two choices in a perfect vacuum where if you guess right, you save it, which isn't the case, that's 50-50. Right. Once you start playing rock, paper, scissors, and there's no ties, you have a two-thirds chance of scoring. Wow. Just putting down the middle is increases your strategy, right? This is not groundbreaking stuff, but teams are afraid to shoot down the middle, and goalkeepers maybe should if maybe should just stand still to to do it, right? This is a really interesting. This is I'm just going to get into the weeds a little bit here. No, go for in, it. In FIFA, the video game, right? Wow. No, I mean I play a lot of FIFA. Is yes. it real soccer? No, it's not. It is not. So. We're starting with that point, right? But in penalty kicks in FIFA, people shoot down the middle a lot more often because if you die in FIFA, if you dive to a corner, you will automatically save it. Always. It's automatic. The game kind of does that to make make give you a chance. But then people respond and you will see goalkeepers just stand in the middle a lot more in FIFA. Part of it is because people like me or 12 year olds want to troll. And there's nothing better than hitting a Panenka on a FIFA opponent and then running to the corner and hitting the Ronaldo. That's how you get a rage quit. But then there's nothing doubly more satisfying. The reverse call an ambulance is when you pull a chip and the goalkeeper just doesn't move. And you have to sit there watching your chip fall right to the guy. And it's humiliating. So... And also the stakes are so much lower in FIFA, right? Which kind of plays into it. In right. The, there's no there's no fear. Kid looking stupid in FIFA, whatever. But when you're a goalkeeper on the biggest stage and you stand in the middle and look stupid because they picked out a corner, that's a different equation, and that maybe plays into it. But I think it's a super interesting point. Morocco pulled it off twice, including the winning penalty, which was a chip Panenka from Atraf Hakimi, who was also very and, very good in this game. Yes. It's fitting that that was the winning one. It was smart, and it was also humiliating. Yeah. Like, you think back, it's happened many times, obviously, but specifically, I think, to the Pirlo one, where Joe Hart was sticking his tongue out in Euro 12, I believe, uh, after every one, he was really trying to get in the head, and Pirlo was like, watch this, bud. Like, (laughs) have that. So... Penalty kicks we know are an are a skill, right? Now yeah. there's this stutter run up, right? We've introduced layers of complexity to the penalty kick. If you can get the keeper to reveal his intention, you should be able to score it. This is one yeah. of the reasons that Ronaldo was a good penalty taker. Neymar have been good penalty takers. But now we're at the point where if you're stuttering and you're not a good one, you're hurting yourself. 
because then you're left with indecision if the keeper yeah. doesn't move. And you right. can't get enough on it because you have such a short run-up that you can't just blast it and get it through regardless of where the keeper goes. There's too much skill in penalty kicks for it to yeah. be a coin flip. And yeah. Morocco took good ones. And I got to say, Sergio Busquets, I would not have put him third. Yeah, I, Like Spain have all these attacking players and they had their two subs take it. And then Busquets, like maybe they were just hitting them great in training, but it did not look that way. They hit a like, thousand of them, apparently. Where's Where's Pedri? Where's Where's Alvaro Morata? Maybe he was going fifth, right? And also, in general, you want your best penalty kick takers to go first. Yeah. You do not want to have the Ronaldo shoots fifth and never gets to go scenario. A great Morocco moment. me this. We've probably analyzed this too much, but. This was good for Morocco and deserved. Okay. Yeah. Done. I I think back to a bit to the to the match itself. I thought Morocco used their substitutions really well here. They got guys who were very clearly gassed off. They ended up having to take off or put on two different center backs in this game, and it was the smart decision. It's what they had to do. And they kept that line moving for the whole game, and that really helped them. That led to Hakim Ziyech being absolutely dead at the end of this game. And how about the game from Sofyan Amrabat, Amit? An absolute menace in the midfield today. The big, bald midfielder from Morocco. All over the place. All over the place. That's got to be one of the best performances of yeah. his life. To chase Spain for 120 minutes, Yeah, that's just like the highest level of defending as a midfielder. And he was one of the reasons that this game was 0-0 it will go down as an all-time great midfielder performance. Um, there has been many all-time yeah. greats, and most of them will get lost because games are about goals and assists and clearances and saves. But in a game that was 0-0, for Morocco to pull off an upset of this magnitude, big reason why. Yeah, and even in like the 118th minute, he was putting pressure on Sergio Busquets in the center circle, trying to pick off a pass and, and set a counterattack the other way. This was great. This was great for the tournament. Uh, I know that you're bummed because you liked this Spain team. Sad selfie from Luis Enrique on the bus, just tweeting through it at the end. Going to be a great Twitch watch because he's just going to keep doing that, apparently. Uh, but this was great for the tournament. The Moroccan fans have been incredible. It's fantastic to have an Arab representative in the quarterfinals at the first Arab World Cup. It's fantastic to have an African representative and a North African representative at that. This was well-deserved, and they have been one of the best teams at this tournament, and this is a well-deserving honor for them. Agreed. The atmosphere was special. I think it contributed partially. I think it frustrated Spain the longer it went on. They were getting booed on every touch. Yeah, like, and they that, were just getting booed for three minutes straight as they just passed yeah, it around in the center circle. Do these things matter? A little bit, right? It all yeah. adds up to, to Morocco doing it. A few more things here. Um, on Morocco, they're, I one of the reasons they're completely deserved is not only are they close to top eight on talent, right? Like, I think yeah. outside of the European powerhouses in Brazil and Argentina, and you look at which... Uh, countries have players at top clubs mm-hmm. morocco and japan were have really good squads um even even senegal did right the yeah. united states got close in their 11 but this was a really good morocco team but then today is a really good example of morocco having tactical flexibility yeah which yeah. plays the difference because i want to transition to spain 
they Luis Enrique is an ideologue. Yeah. He has said his intentions the whole tournament that Spain are going to play they're gonna, the way they're going to play. But he has these grandiose ideas of attacking soccer, but they actually don't play attacking soccer. And that's what's a bummer for Spain. And that's where they, like Germany, have not learned from their past decade of World Cup shortcomings. And we've come full circle on World Cup After Dark. Go listen to our first few podcasts and you'll hear us yelling at England and France being like, boring, boring, boring. Except here we are in the knockouts and Spain and Germany are gone because they conceded too many ch- big chances or they and they couldn't score. Spain in this tournament conceded the most XG per shot. That is bad. That means you try to control the game and it's not working. And I'm bummed because I don't want more teams to play like France and England, but they are figuring out how to use their talent at this level better because all of these teams are this close on talent, right? What's the difference between Spain and England and Germany and France? Right, I think the managing here matters, and it's a big soul-searching coming up for those federations, Spain and Germany, that are out, because Luis Enrique is a really good coach. Hansi Flick is a really good coach, but you can't ignore right these repeated patterns of failure. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting because yesterday in the press conference, somebody kind of jokingly asked Luis, are you going to play some long balls? And it was just like, no, that's not what we do. And this was a game, given the setup from Morocco, that was begging for that. They had to do it. You have to try it, at least for a little bit. Final thing on this game for me. Um, Walid Regragui, the Moroccan manager, is a rising star because he has done fantastic work with this team. This team looked dead in the water under Valid Holic. They came to the U.S. in June and got smashed 3-0 in a friendly and he was freezing out some of the important players in this Moroccan team. Uh, Regragui came in, and this is a guy whose managerial career has been basically limited to Morocco and also in the Middle East with Al Duhal, which is a Qatari team. He was the manager of YI Casablanca, which is one of the two big clubs in Morocco, and got this Morocco job and deserves massive credit, not just because he was able to manufacture this result, but as you said, the tactical flexibility that they have shown. They have used their talent to the best of their ability at this tournament. And when the situation is called for it, they have gone and attacked games and they have made teams uncomfortable. And in this case, they knew that they had to be able to defend cohesively as a unit for the entirety of this game. But also they knew that if they were able to string together passes from the back, they took the risk of passing out from the back in order to attempt to create chances. And it almost worked on a number of different occasions. This was a really good game plan, and this is a manager who is absolutely deserving of this result, and this is a team who is absolutely deserving of this result. It was impressive to watch. It was fun to watch, and I'm happy that they got it done. Agreed completely. It's been really impressive from him, and maybe it'll lead to a big move, hopefully, where he gets an opportunity to flex these these chops more. Shall we talk about Ronaldo? Is it time? Yeah, I want to start with this. Uh, We get some things wrong. We're not right on everything. Uh, And part of predicting soccer, the inherent uncertainty in this sport, is tough. But we've been right about a lot of things. And we were very right about Ronaldo from the start. The nerds have been on this for a long time. We've said from the start, they are worse with him in the squad. And look what happened. They benched Cristiano Ronaldo. 
His replacement, Gonzalo Ramos, scores a hat trick, a 21-year-old playing domestically in Portugal. It's not like they benched Cristiano Ronaldo for some massive world superstar name. They didn't even bench him for Rafael Leão. Bring on Gonzalo Ramos. He scores a hat trick. Portugal wins 6-1. Cristiano Ronaldo is left with crumbs in 15 minutes, a free kick straight into the wall, a wistful look as Rafael Leão scores the sixth goal for Portugal as he was begging for him to cross him the ball into the middle of the pitch. This was everything we had said about Portugal. They are better when Cristiano Ronaldo doesn't play. Fernando Santos took the lead. Whether that was precipitated by what happened in the South Korea game, where Ronaldo was apparently not happy about being substituted, surprise, surprise, when he was, or whatever it was that caused Fernando Santos to do this, he's crossed the Rubicon, right? I mean, there's no going back after seeing what happened today. No going back. Ramos is a must start. I appreciate the classical reference there for crossing the Rubicon. Yeah, thank you. But, yeah, it's it's crazy how much better they look, right? We said all this, but then to actually see them play better, it was free-flowing. Their counterattacks were so dangerous because Ramos can run. He, he can run. Ronaldo cannot. And then it freed up Joao Felix, Bruno Fernandes, you know. The other players in this squad, there are there are plenty of them. And when Liao was on, it was even more dangerous. And they just looked so good at combining. And, you know, Switzerland are good. And they were completely outclassed in this yeah. game. And about the vibes, did you see what happened after the game where Ramos is walking around with his match ball and him and Liao are giggling and Ronaldo is walking off the field by himself. This could just be me reading into the body language. I think this team is just like laughing at playing Ronaldo off the pitch. They have played him. They have made their own situation better. They're like, look how good we are when we don't have to deal with this crazy man. He makes us worse. He brings us drama. We're tired of this old man. And they're like, they look free and happy. When Liao scored, everyone ran over to him and just like laughed with him. For like two minutes straight. And they all just laughed. And Ronaldo walked over, gave him a customary high five, and walked off. Ronaldo just sulked the whole time he was on the pitch. Your team is up 6-1 in a World Cup round of 16 match. And you're sulking? I Like, everything we have said about him has been true and worse. I just don't get how he's... How anyone at this point is duped into thinking that he is a useful player and makes this team better at, at all. And also, if they need an old guy to jump really high, apparently they have Pepe because he did that today and scored a goal. So everything that Ronaldo could potentially bring is covered. And look, we've said it consistently. They are better when he is not on the pitch. But they would also be better if he was willing to be selfless, if he was willing to sacrifice. There is a useful role in him in, him in this team because he is still a really good header of the ball he still has really good movement within the box. He can be a useful attacking player in the right situation for Portugal. But if he is not willing to accept that role, it is so much easier to just pin him on the bench and let the photographers take pictures of him for 90 minutes. Exactly. And the reason why we know all of this is we've seen it happen at Manchester United over yep. the course of years. We've seen it happen at all the clubs he's strung along. He's been in decline for a few years, and it was just accelerated this year. And, I, you know, he, he's still going to go down as the second best player of this century, and it's not really close to anyone else. And 
That's great. And his World Cup contributions, his Portugal contributions, they won a Euro 16. And he didn't play in the final, but he was a big reason of that. He's a great career. He's a great player. And now he's just not that. And he can't, he seems to be the last one that, that can accept it. And it's almost like sad to, to see it happen this way because he's not enjoying Portugal's own success. He's, his ego is bigger than his own team. That's a bummer. And they have a legitimate chance to win this World Cup. After what we saw today, after the performance that they put in, the fact that they're getting a Morocco team that is going to be running on fumes by the time they get to Saturday for this game. Portugal are every bit the World Cup favorite that everybody else is, right? They are in the second tier. They are behind France and Brazil, but I don't think you can put Portugal playing this way any high, like They're equal to where we think Argentina are. They're certainly equal to where we think England are. They are absolutely capable of winning this World Cup. And he just can't recognize it. I know. And that's why it's good for them that they all realize that they can win this thing now that they've kind of yeah. internally cast his whole his whole shtick aside. Um, I was doing the two motion because they are in the second tier, but because of their path, the reasons yeah. you just outlined, they're up to second in the 538 odds or, pre- or their predictions. Yeah. Like, that's a sign of how good they are. And obviously the numbers are juiced from putting six up on Switzerland. But putting six up on Switzerland means you're really good yeah. attacking team. Brazil against this Switzerland team did not have this type of performance. And yes, they didn't have Neymar in that game. But Brazil labored a whole lot more against Switzerland than Portugal did today. They were incisive. They were quick. They were fluid. They were fantastically impressive. Switzerland, dude, what happened? Yeah, I think Switzerland were a middle-tier team, good yep. team. I think they deserved fully to be in the round of 16. But they needed a lot of luck uh, to be in this game. And Portugal were relatively ruthless. And I also just think, you know, we're not. I'm not going to pin this on just on Shakiri, But Port- or Switzerland's midfield was overrun pretty, yeah. pretty clearly. And... That can happen against a team that's inspired and in playing attacking football. I'm not sure they expected it, to be honest, right? If yeah. you're game planning for Portugal, you're like, listen, they're going to pass around and they're going to dominate, but we just need to hold on and defend. I don't think they were expecting this team is going to like turn the crank up to 11 and just boss us, right? Like, yeah. who, who, who is defending that at that level, right? A team much better than Switzerland. Yeah, yeah. It was it was really impressive from Portugal. They were really good, and yeah, I was blown away by what they were capable of doing. Very quickly, before we preview the quarterfinals, can I interest you in a Cristiano Ronaldo, Vincent Abubakar, P.T. Martinez front three at Al Nasir in Saudi Arabia? Is that who's going to be there? Those are the players who are currently on the roster of the Saudi Arabian team who are courting Cristiano Ronaldo. That's, that's too many strikers. You can't play a ball. And if you play the ball, who's who's going to give them the ball? But it's the Saudi Pro League. I mean, I think you can play them all. I think that's you the point. The, that's the point. Good for all of them. Uh, the yeah. number I saw what for what Ronaldo is going to make, um, I don't know how much Cristiano Ronaldo has been inspired in his career by money or motivated by money. Um, this is a, a conversation that I don't care about, but it certainly matters in golf, right? The whole L- live yeah. tour versus PGA. I don't care. I'm surprised. I, I'm actually, I'm not surprised 
But Ronaldo choosing that to make $200 million a year, right? If that's what's important to you, go get it. But also, like, have fun toiling away, toiling away in Saudi Arabia, right? That shows you where you are now. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if I can say that's, like, what Messi's doing is better, like, sitting on the bench in Miami in July. But, like, teach their own. Yeah, sure. Uh, Ronaldo, Vinny, Abubakar, sign me up. Sign me up. All right, it's quarterfinal preview time. Amit. We have four fabulous quarterfinal matchups. Let's start at the start with Brazil-Croatia. We just saw Brazil run rampant through South Korea. They put in the best performance of this tournament until maybe what we saw from Portugal today. I think those two were probably the two best, most comprehensive performances from the favorites at this tournament. This is a completely different animal for Brazil because this is a Croatian midfield that can cause them problems. Can this Croatia defense, though, keep Brazil off the score sheet enough for it to matter what they can do going back the other way? Fair. That's the question, right? I think you, you, you hit it spot on there. And I think Brazil are good enough to outclass Croatia, but it will not be easy. And classic case of the longer Croatia gets in, the more belief they have. Croatia, on top of having a good midfield and just an overall good team and a very good approach um, we've seen from their manager so far, um, their experience is showing up on the score sheet. It is counting. They are built for these kinds of games. They are just not naive at all. Um, They know how to navigate it. They know how to go 90 minutes, 120 minutes. They know how to frustrate you. And you look at their past two runs, right? Euro 2020 world uh world cup in 2018 they were really only bossed off the field by france in the final and france kind of just jumped on them early and scored and then once croatia chased the game they didn't have enough legs to do it and that was at the end of a long tournament i don't think croatia's legs are there but that's the recipe right is that croatia are experienced enough to hang with anyone but they don't have enough top to bottom for the very top tier. So Brazil, if they get in gear, this should be relatively comfortable. But if they don't, they're they're in for a long day. And it will be hard. Every inch on the field will be hard fought for them. And given what we know about Brazil, they're a good bet to get something in their opening pressure. Yeah, they're opening flurry that you just know is coming. So that's the big question, right? If Croatia can survive that, they can find a foothold. They'll have chances to make good passes and get something on Brazil. But if Brazil go up early, I struggle to see Croatia really clawing back over time. Yeah, the plan for Croatia here, like you said, is survive the opening salvo from Brazil, which always comes. And then I think will be to attempt to get something quickly thereafter. Because I think you want to put Brazil behind in this game and you want to bring everything back from what happened against Argentina in Copa America and what happened against Belgium four years ago in the World Cup. You want all of that sitting with Brazil as they attempt to break you down and score goals because you want to add to the pressure for Brazil. You don't want it to be easy. You don't want it to be free-flowing. You don't want them to to get into the move that we saw against South Korea. That's exactly it. Because in this kind of current life cycle for Brazil, they are very good at getting their game plan. But in their two biggest failures, they couldn't chase a result. Yep. And it's they're a team that with so much attacking talent should be able to do that. 
So it's really psychological, I think, that you hit on. If Croatia can tap into that, that's their formula here. And uh, I was going to say uh, on Brazil as well, with Neymar, they have looked very, very good. Yeah. Um, that that gear is going to be that much harder for Croatia to st- stop. Yeah. And we talked about it extensively yesterday with how it frees up Paqueta and then Richarlison is, you know, just in the box and tough to guard. So I I think Brazil should take care of business here, but this Croatia team is just kind of hard to um, predict. They have under overperformed their talent level consistently, and that means that they're just good at this. So I I think this could be tough for Brazil, but I don't know. I, I I'm wary of Croatia, but I'm not I'm not believing here. Yeah. Casemiro, big for Brazil, obviously. If Croatia are to get a foothold in the midfield in this game, they're going to have to get through him somehow. And very few people have been able to do that so far. Second quarterfinal game on Friday is another really interesting one. And I think this one is really interesting in Argentina and the Netherlands because we are going to see something different from at least one of these two teams. These two teams so far have played four games that for the most part have followed the same exact script. For all of them. The Netherlands have been tactically organized. They have been clinical with their chances. They have punished ruthlessly opposition mistakes. And they have won or drawn in the case of the Ecuador game with relative ease. And they have not been put under pressure. They have not needed to seek out a result. Argentina have needed to seek out a result. Ever since the two Saudi Arabian goals, they have been under constant pressure at this World Cup. And they have faced teams that have bunkered in against them and they have sought to break down those teams. What happens in this game? Do we get part five of the Argentina versus a set defense omit? Or will Louis van Hall let his Netherlands team try and come and play a little bit more? And if they get behind, will they be able to go and chase a goal and chase a result? I think Louis van Hall is going to set up his team defensively. He did it against the U.S., a team that was worse than him. And I think he's going to watch how teams have frustrated Argentina and say the pressure's on you to come create. And if you want to bring your outside backs up to really get numbers to get your attack going, we're going to do our best to fend it off and we're going to be lethal the other way. Right? This is it's yeah. it, it, it's coming a lot to this tournament is you know what how involved you get your fullbacks and then how the other team is able to attack that space and then actually does it. And Denzel Dumfries is that dangerous. He's weirdly become uh, kind of their X factor here. And that left side for Argentina, if I'm not mistaken, is Acuna. And he gets very, very high up the field. He essentially plays like a left winger for them when thing, when they their attack is going well. So that's a really, really interesting area to watch. And I think, you know, if Netherlands go down, then it the, then they'll respond. Then Louis van Hall will say, "We'll we'll chase it." But he's going to make Argentina come attack them. And this is a very big question for Argentina, right? Do they commit full on to their getting yeah. their fullbacks and to really leaning into it, or do they protect themselves against Gakpo, De Jong, Dumfries the other way? I I think that's how it's going to go. And I don't know. Do you think how how do you think Scaloni approaches it on his side? I think this could be cagey, right? I think Argentina might be a bit reticent 
to commit that extra number that they maybe need forward and the first hour 70 75 minutes of this game could be Argentina kind of controlling possession not being able to create a ton and seeing if they can fall into a moment of brilliance right which they are more than capable of doing and they have it multiple times in this tournament and then if that doesn't work or if that doesn't come then we maybe see an adjustment from somewhere Angel Di Maria looks like he'll be able to play a role in this game I'm not sure if it's going to be from the start. I don't know if it'll be off the bench. He obviously makes Argentina better. And this is an Argentine defense that while they've conceded three goals at this World Cup, they have been largely untested, right? They made one big play against Australia at 2-1, and they got one big save against Australia at 2-1. And other than that, they have not been called into action over four games. That changes here because no matter how bunkered defensive Netherlands will be, they will still look to counter and they will be very efficient at doing that. And they have the names and the numbers to make Argentina sweat coming back defensively. And that might be what causes Argentina to be less committed to attack, at least to start this game. This is probably going to be a tactical, nervy, sweaty quarterfinal of a world cup that if it was any other game would not be super interesting but because it's the quarterfinal of a world cup it will obviously be very very interesting i think you hit it spot on everything we've seen leads to it being that kind of game and big game for nicholas otamendi yep. in transition he's gonna be one-on-one a few times with gakpo probably gakpo yeah and he's going to have to do what he's done which has been very assured in those moments. Same thing for Kuti Romero, but I think Otamendi is often the guy kind of yeah. cleaning it up, specifically in that left center side. And then because Netherlands play five in the back, they're not going to change that. This is, as always, a very interesting game for Leo Messi yeah. because I think you're spot on. Netherlands are going to be defensive. Argentina are going to be reticent and counting on Messi. And with back five, there's that much less space. But if you look specifically Daily Blind, Netherlands get away with playing this guy who's not very fast, but very, very savvy as the left outside back. So is Messi going to go stretch him? Is Messi going to just hang out in that little pocket in the center slash right center all game and wait for something? Because that's where his two goals have come from, right? He just He just gets loose in that pocket for a second and then boom, it's over. So it's it's going to be really interesting and it's on Netherlands to to focus on him for 90 minutes, but then also someone else. And, you know, I think also another game for Julian Alvarez, right? Yep. He's he's the striker to to bang against this back line, against Virgil van Dijk, get some physical challenges. And then, you know, in a game this tactical, this nervy, from here on out, you say it every game, set pieces, right? Yep. And I think Argentina will probably have a few more of them if they're just, you know, smashing balls, bounces for corners. Yeah. Can they get an inspired moment? And I think we both are in full agreement for how this game is going to go. And I think it's maybe the most, I don't know. It's definitely a game that's more likely to be zero, zero than the other games. I think because of the way they approach and maybe just the talent overall, but the pressure is on either of these teams to, especially the Netherlands. If they're down one, we have not seen them this tournament do it. 
And we yeah. know Louis Van Hall is smart, and we know there's attacking players in the squad, but they haven't done it yet. So this is a really, really big test. Um, I think the pressure's on Argentina here. It is. Oh, the yeah. Netherlands are kind of... I mean, yeah, it, it's kind of obvious to say that, but the Netherlands are going to be like, go ahead, break your demons. Break yeah. us down. And be wary, because if you slip up, we're there. We're right there. This is this is a really sweaty game for Argentina. And the vibes are back, right? Yep. How long until the vibes start looking sour and it looks like Messi needs to save them? Yeah. Uh, obviously, lots of World Cup history between these two teams as well. The Netherlands are the team that Argentina beat in the 1978 World Cup final. They beat the Netherlands to get to the final at the World Cup in Brazil in 2014. Tons of history between these two teams, and they will go at it again on Friday. Saturday's games, Amit, we just saw Morocco put in a massive defensive performance in a nil-nil result that got them the penalties, and then they won on penalties. What is the approach for these guys on Saturday against Portugal? Do they try to do the same game plan that they just did? Or do they have to switch it up because Portugal are much more dangerous in attack than Spain were? I think the difficulty, the sliders just got put to uh, all Madden in yeah. the football, other football terms, right? Spain, very technical, very talented, very good passers. Portugal are the same, except they're trying to go forward. Yeah. And not afraid to hit a ball over the top. So, yeah, this is a different ask for Morocco. And I do think because of that, they need to be more more on the front foot, yeah. right? They need to draw a higher line. I know that leaves space, but they can't let Portugal just boss it around. They need to be careful to avoid transition for sure, but they need to put Portugal's back line under pressure, right? Who in this tournament has, has done that so far? Uruguay in the last minutes of it being crazy, Ghana when it was crazy, but like not in an open state. And that's where Morocco can do more damage than anyone else has. They well, that's need... what South Korea did against Portugal, right? That's where they yeah. had success was in transition and on counters. And that is what Morocco probably need to do here is they need to be willing and aggressive going back the other way when they win possession. They have to create opportunities going back the other way and they have to take chances. Exactly. And if they if their counterattacks are getting snubbed, because they can't get enough numbers forward, they can't make those runs over the course of 90 minutes, Portugal will methodically work their way in and back them in. And how, how much defending do they have to do today in like terms of just like bunkered in? 20 minutes in regulation and another yeah. 30, right? I mean, that's a lot to ask. Yeah, You can't just ask that for 60, 70 minutes plus extra time in this match uh, against a team that's, frankly much more incisive yeah that's just tough so they're in a tough spot because of the legs issue um but they're going to be set up to succeed and they need to hope that <laughs> ramos is not uh in fine form because for all of switzerland getting punked that first goal was kind yeah. of not lucky it was actually a very good finish but you don't expect a goal to be scored from there yeah right switzerland were fine and then ramos pops up and turns an impossible angle. And that's frankly a golazo. Like that's a really good shot. Uh, if he's doing that, you know, good luck, right? If, yeah. if, if, Portu if Portugal have all these great creative players and their number nines finishing half chances, like what can you do? That's what yeah. we said earlier. So yeah. that's what Morocco need in this game. They're definitely not out of it, but it's quite a, a an order of magnitude harder. Yeah. Obviously 
massive that Morocco's elite players, speaking specifically Hakimi and Ziyech, are factors in this game and are factors going forward and are factors in troubling the Portugal defense and asking questions of Portugal. You would really love for those two to be able to combine and create a really good chance that you can score at some point in this game because they're probably going to need it. Last quarterfinal game, Amit. I think this is the headliner. They've all are going to be good. There are storylines in all of them. But France and England is the first real heavyweight clash with stakes at this World Cup. We saw Germany, Spain. They're both gone. Not true heavyweights. These are two teams that are World Cup favorites and are going to go blow for blow. And so many interesting questions in this game. So many interesting questions. What is the one question that you're most intrigued by between these two teams? Who wants to get the opening goal more? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the answer is France. Yeah. I think they'll they'll be on the front foot and want it more. And I think that's going to shape this whole game because these two teams are stacked and able to attack with few players. They're better when they attack with more players, but they don't want to open themselves up that both of them, both of these managers and teams are very experienced at this style of soccer. Yeah. And there are very few mistakes that are going to be made in bad spots. Right. Or just like, unless it's Hugo Lloris shipping a goal or Jordan Pickford make missing a savable ball. Like it's going to be very hard to do something. So who can create with less? And then if it's not less, who wants to put in more? And the answer is probably France, given what we know about Southgate and then just France have Mbappe. And if they commit to getting him the ball in dangerous areas, England have to deal with that more. I think England's options of attacking uh, are harder, right? They're going to have to work more to get chances. So... Yeah, that's that's it. But like, we could start from there. There's a million different wrinkles that you can go from that. And right. the big question, which you brought up before on an earlier podcast, is when someone scores, then what happens? That yeah. to me is the most interesting. But there's a there's a chance it could be zero zero for a yeah. while. This game, once it gets a goal, becomes absolutely fascinating. And I am hoping that it gets a goal because if for this game that is so promising, that has so much riding on it for it to sit in that kind of meandering netherworld of nil-nil would be frustrating because the two possibilities, France score first, we see England play. They have to. It's that time. We said it comes for every team at a major tournament. At some point, you have to put your chips at the center of the table and you have to come play football. If France score first, that point will arrive for England. If England score first, that point arrives for France. And oh boy, when it does, is it interesting because of all the attacking players that they have, because of how smooth we've seen their attack look. That France attack being forced into chasing England, because I I think France take the initiative here. I'm with you on that. But there's a completely different game state. When it's nil-nil, you are still protecting against conceding. When it is one-nil, when you are down a goal, it is totally different. And slowly but surely, you throw more and more into the pot. You bring on another attacking player for a midfielder or a defensive player or whatever it may be. And if that's France doing that, I don't know that there's a more entertaining team to watch do that at this tournament. And it would be 
thrilling. And if it's England doing that, I'm going to be happy because it's the first time I've ever seen England have to do that at a major tournament under Gareth Southgate. Agreed with you. And on this, the counters to both of that is when the team goes up, which other team is more dangerous the other way. And France in transition counterattacking is the most dangerous team playing that style of football because of Mbappe's brilliance and because of their team recognizing that. So France going up, England might not even chase it until there's even in a knockout game until there's a while. So that, that'd be tough. But then, you know, England have shown Bellingham, Kane and runners, right? They're plenty capable. So that also the caution, even when you're down a goal to protect against the other team's counter is part of it here. And then let's look at the, the kind of the past histories for this team in the recent cycle, right? We, we mentioned this already. We talked about it off the air. Maybe we brought it up on the air. England have only trailed here for nine minutes against Denmark and then against Croatia for the last 10 minutes of extra time in the 18 World Cup semifinal. They just haven't done this. And then yeah. you look at France. They have rarely done it either. Argentina went shock to one up in that 18 round of 16, the Di Maria Golazo. And they were more than willing to chase the game, but their tying goal came from the Pavard Golazo of all Golazos. Also, Jorge Sampaoli's Argentina was not built to protect a lead. It really wasn't built at all, but it was certainly not built to protect a lead the way that this Gareth Southgate England team would be. Completely different challenge. That was a a test that they should have passed, and they did, and they ended up running riot in a 4-2 win. Um, against Croatia, the final score 4-2, it was never that close. Right. France kind of just, you know, Croatia tied the game, and then France pretty much yeah. ran them off the field. Google moment came at 4-1. Good for yeah. France. Exactly. So France are the more scary team. They are the higher octane team. We recognize that. But England are more than capable of scoring first. And the true question is what they can do if they go down. But they maybe they'll avoid that. Maybe they yeah. will. And, you know, if it comes to penalties, just imagine the drama. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it would be the most psychological, overanalyzed shootout in quite some time. So, Well, it'd be fascinating because both of those teams went out of the last Euro on penalties, right? Yeah. Oh, France and- blew the lead against Switzerland and then yeah. went out on penalties. And England went out on penalties in the final like they have done at so many a major tournament. That would be... Yeah, an insane penalty shootout. And that is the one saving grace of a turgid, boring, bad nil-nil is we get that penalty shootout at the end of it. The worst thing that could happen in this matchup is somebody scores in the 114th minute because then I get answers to none of my questions and I don't even get the penalty shootout as compensation. That's your spot on. That would be terrible. We can't have that. Um I do think I meant to bring that up too in their Euro run for France. They were dumped out in a game they didn't trail, right? right. They were up three one and just kind of like turned the their brain off. Yeah. And that was that was that. So like France have not shown yet that this team can kind of just be like beaten in neutral play. But England have also shown that doesn't happen to them unless it's Croatia in the hundred ninth minute. So like Something's got to give. And then we're just really excited to see how it goes. Yeah. Oh, oh man. Every so often, I just kind of remember Argentina play on Friday. It's a World Cup quarterfinal. And you just get that, like, feeling, you know? Yeah. It's just like, ugh. 
So yeah, this these are going to be great World Cup quarterfinals. I think they are spaced really well. I think starting with Brazil is super interesting, and then closing with the France England monster blockbuster matinee, as some would say, match. Uh, it's a big one, and I'm certainly looking forward to it. Do you want to make predictions? Yeah, I think Brazil will win. Okay. Uh, I think Argentina will win, and maybe in penalties. I think oh. it, that that's going to be dicey. I okay. do think, right? That can happen in these quarterfinals. Debu Martinez over the volleyballer. Oh, I forgot about that whole narrative. Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, okay. Let's see who your fourth and fifth penalty kick takers are in the Netherlands. Let's see. Um, I think Portugal will win, and then uh, I have. I think France is better, but I think England might do it. Oh. I don't know. I think the vibes, not the. I, I've just been more impressed by this England team, and they're much yeah. better than I thought they were coming in. This France team is at their peak, but something weird has to happen, right? We can't have yeah. four chalk. I guess we can. It was seven out of eight chalk in the, the yeah. round of 16. So I don't know. What are your predictions? It should be yeah. noted that you went eight for eight in your on-the-record picks. Yeah, the uh, the only reason I asked for predictions was so we could get that stat in, that I am somehow <laughs> pitching a perfect World Cup bracket that will almost assuredly go to flames this weekend. So I'm, in, I'm basking in the glory while I can. I'm sticking with those picks, obviously. I took Brazil over Korea. I think, excuse me, they already beat Korea over Croatia. I think Croatia can cause Brazil problems, but I think even if this Croatia team find two goals, I think Brazil can find four. That's my feeling on this match. Argentina get through. Don't really know how. It's probably going to be tense. I'm probably going to be a pool of sweat by the end of it. I think that happens. I think Portugal are going to be too much for Morocco. I think Morocco spent too much in this to get this Spain result. I would love to see them go through. I will be supporting them to go through. But I think the Portugal attack will just kind of overwhelm Morocco by the end of this game. And I'm with you. I think England get it done against France. And we continue waiting to see what it looks like when this England team has to play. Right. We are in for two, like, truly (laughs) just edge-of-your-seat, like, stomach-clenching quarterfinals from start to finish. And one of them, you will be a pool of sweat. But even for me, like, these two matches are going to be some of the most nervy stuff, right? Once you're in the World Cup quarterfinals, you can cut through the air with the knife, man. It's yeah. going to be awesome. Yeah. It's moments and it's going to be incredible and impressive. And we're certainly looking forward to it. We will be back to recap it all. I think we'll probably record on Friday, depending on the Argentina result and my general mood. We could be looking at an Argentina-Brazil semifinal, which has been the, the, the words that are whispered around Argentina and Brazil for the last like six months has been like, Argentina might play Brazil in the semifinal. And then, you know, you got to get through everything before that. But we could actually have to say that out loud on Friday night. And then Saturday, obviously, we've got the big game. So come back for more from us at World Cup After Dark. As always, thanks for listening.